This is Jenica Harper, and you're watching the TV Writer Podcast. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. And by Final Draft Script Writing Software, the entertainment industry standard for script writing worldwide. My name is Gray Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine, episode 23 for Monday, May 30th, 2011. Well, today I am so excited to bring you an interview that I had with Canadian TV and feature writer Jenica Harper. Um, you're going to love the interview. She, I, as, as many of the other writers who have been on the podcast, has written for many different forms. She's actually published poetry collections. She's published a graphic novel. She's published short stories, and she's also worked for several years in television and feature development and uh, is currently writing for, well, she's still writing for all of those different things. And, uh, and she has a lot of great tips for not only breaking in, but how to get ahead in your chosen part of the industry. So I'm sure you're going to love it. Before that interview, I do want to mention a few things. One of them is the TV writer chat happening every Sunday night. Take advantage of it. We've actually had a really, really encouraging response the last couple of weeks. And uh, I urge you to, to take part. And that is every Sunday night at 6.30 p.m. Pacific, 9.30 p.m. Eastern. And you just go on Twitter and use the hashtag TV Writer Chat, or you can go to a website where it auto enters that uh, hashtag for you, and you don't have to worry about uh, typing that every time. But you can get the details at TVWriterChat.com. Speaking about Twitter, make sure you follow me on Twitter at Gray Jones. That way you can find out about people who are being interviewed and get your questions in. Also, go to tvwriterpodcast.com and you can find lots of great resources, including a database of TV writers on Twitter that has over 700 writers and continues to climb. Make sure you also check out our back episodes while you're there. Uh, we've had 23 so far, and there, there have been a lot of great interviews that are all applicable. Even there's a couple of shows that were unfortunately canceled, like Human Target and V, but the, the lessons in those interviews are still very, very useful. Um, and as well, uh, I do want to make sure that you know the homework that's on the table. Elephant Bucks by Sheldon Bull, an excellent, excellent book about sitcom writing. And I'll let you in on a secret. It's also got some helpful lessons for uh, writing dramatic shows as well, even though that's not the focus of the book, but there are great lessons there. And actually, really, really interestingly, Sheldon um, broke one rule <laughs> that uh, that we often talk about with spec writing, that you don't write a spec for the show that you want to write for. Sheldon actually was one person who wrote a spec MASH script that got sent to the producers of MASH, and they liked it so much that they got him to write an, a freelance episode for them. So this guy knows how to how to write sitcoms so well that even his spec script for a show he's not working for will get noticed. So lots to learn from this book. Elephant Bucks by Shul Sheldon Bull. You can get it from tvwriterpodcast.com from the, the store there. And if you do, it helps to support the podcast. So I encourage you to do so. Make sure you check out our partner, scriptmag.com. Lots of great resources there, including Gene Bowerman's Balls of Steel. And also, Chad Gervich has a lot of great articles on TV writing from his tremendous TV writing expertise. So anyway, on to my interview with Jenica Harper. Enjoy. This is Greg Jones, and I'm here with TV and feature writer Jenica Harper, who hails from Vancouver. How are you doing, Jenica? I'm really good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, it's a pleasure to have you. And, and it's actually a treat because, of course, everybody knows I'm Canadian. And um, and just as luck would have it, we've had quite a few Canadian writers on the podcast in the last couple of months. So so it's really neat that you could be a part. And also another neat thing is that um, even though the industry is not dominated by the female persuasion, we've had quite a few on the podcast as well. Last week and this week, uh, two female writers in a row, which is really cool. Excellent. We may not be plentiful, but we're mouthy. So <laughs> we say yes, I guess, to the interviews. This is good. Yeah, very, very cool. <laughs> so uh, as we always do, we're going to go way back and start with how you got started. And I'm particularly interested because I know that you went to the University of Toronto and then ended up on the West Coast. But where 
where were you born and, and how did that fit in? I was born in North Bay, Ontario, mm -hmm. sort of up in the, you know, I was born in Skidoo country, I guess, and lived there when I was a kid. And then we moved around quite a bit in Ontario when I was growing up and we ended up finally settling in Brampton. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually from the Burbs, the Toronto Burbs. Yeah. So we we probably should explain for our American viewers that a skidoo is a device <laughs> that travels along the snow. Yes, right. A snowmobile? Yeah. <laughs> it's like a jet ski, but on snow. Yeah. If that helps them. So yeah, that did not even occur to me. That's very funny. Uh, <laughs> skidoos and bonfires. Uh, a bonfire is what? No. I'm sure people have heard of a bonfire. Yeah. So kind of, you know, north-ish. You know, it's not that crazy far north, but it is kind of far removed from, from the city. But then ended up in the suburbs. And, you know, when you grow up in the suburbs, you just spend every possible free hour once you're sort of of age um, heading into, into Toronto. At hmm. least that's what everybody I knew did. Yeah. Sort of loved loved Toronto. And um, so did end up going to, to school there, studied uh, literature. So... Probably you've seen, having looked a little bit at my background, that um, I also wrote poetry, and that was something that, so I, I do have kind of the English lit geek in me still, and um, that was what I kind of pursued right away in um, when I went to university, and uh, it was one of those things that it seemed like something, you know, poetry was something that I actually read, short stories I read, novels mm -hmm. I read, they actually seemed like a human being was on the other side of that and wrote them. But, you know, <laughs> when you're growing up, I mean, and I knew that plays were written by people, but, you know, I, it, I didn't really make the leap to the movies and TV shows I loved so much were also, you know, just people who had committed to a writing career in this particular field and, and worked at that and, and eventually kind of, you know, made movies and TV shows that hadn't really it hadn't really dawned on me when I finally did um, take the, at the time U of T didn't have a lot of creative writing classes. They mm -hmm. now have a whole program at the time they didn't. And so there, I could sort of piece together a bunch of different courses that were, you know, a poetry one here and sort of a, a mixed genre class over here. And this one screenwriting one over here, um, which was just the loosest possible definition of learning to be a screenwriter. But mm -hmm. it also, um, kind of gave me a taste for it. And then, um, and it, I kind of really got it. I was like, oh, this is, this would be really cool. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, much as I enjoyed theater, I was, you know, I'm a voracious lover of TV and movies. Mm -hmm. So that, it, you know, it sort of seems like that's the most direct route to being able to work on something you really love. So, um, yeah. So I guess what happened was I, when I was graduating university, it became clear to me that either I was not done with school or maybe just too afraid to actually be, do something other than school. Mm -hmm. So I was sort of torn between an academic route and a cre the creative route that is really what I wanted to pursue. So there were, I, I applied to a few different master's programs and I ended up choosing the one out here in Vancouver, um, UBC's creative writing MFA, mm -hmm. which is a two year program that is completely creative writing as opposed to, a part, partly an academic stream and partly a creative stream. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, it's the only one that I applied to that also had this, this screen, you know, I was kind of coming in as a poet, which was, I don't know, it seemed like the thing to do to apply as a poet <laughs> and, and do this fancy degree. And, um, but in the end, uh, out here, I ended up falling in love with screenwriting yet again. It just really, it just really kind of, it really clicked that way. And I was working with, um, Linda Svensson, who, it's one of the writers of Human Cargo. I don't know if you ever saw Human Cargo, but it's a terrific miniseries. Mm -hmm. um, and many other adaptations. He's a wonderful writer. And Peggy Thompson, who wrote Better Than Chocolate and um, a number of other features. So I had, you know, some pretty amazing women who, they happened to be women, but they were, <laughs> um, you know, great mentors for me. And after that, I kind of swapped. Poetry kind of ended up taking a back seat. And I still do write in that in that form, but that's kind of just more for the pure experience of it and enjoyment of it and it's you know it's a small but rich community in Canada and I'm part of that community too mm -hmm. but TV and movies are really where I wanted to I wanted to throw myself at a career in this in, in screenwriting so that's kind of when it happened and that's why I've been out here for 12 years 13 years something like that mm -hmm. I think it came, out, it came out in 98 well before we move on to to TV and features because it, it is fascinating how many how many different um 
genres you've worked in, really. Uh, but before we leave, I, I'm really impressed with the fact that you you have continued your your poetry. You've you've had poetry fiction published in literary magazines, over 25 publications. Don't be too impressed. <laughs> you you've published two collections of poetry, one in 2006 and one in 2008. So th- I mean, this is obviously something that's still. Um, very much a part of you. It is. It's, it is definitely alive for me. Yeah. Um, what happened was, you know, it's, um, I say don't be too impressed because, you know, it's a, it's something that I selfishly really love to do still. So mm-hmm. can you hear that siren? I'm really that's sorry. Okay, I, that's okay. I live at a major intersection yeah. here in Vancouver. Um, I'm not hurt <laughs> if anyone's wondering. I'm okay. I'm, I'm going to be okay. Everybody's going to be okay. So I, uh, continue to work in poetry partly because there's no money in it. That it's just it's it's a part it's a it's another way to sort of express yourself creatively and to push the envelope in terms of language and storytelling. You know, my my poetry is quite narrative based, so it's not it's pretty accessible for the average reader. But it is you know because there's no money in it, it is just it is sort of for the love of the for the love of the thing, mm-hmm. um, which is a real can be a really nice break, you know to. To take, it can be a really nice sort of change of pace to say, I'm just going to work on something that is because I'm experimenting with something, not because I need to be able to sell it or or use it as a sample to try and get a job. And um, yeah, that's what I love about it. So I just continue to. There's not a lot of pressure on that on that part of my career. So I I really enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Well, now um, short stories in particular can can transition into features. Um, have Have you found any of your your poetry or fiction motivating? your your other narrative work ah uh, in a really direct way well, yeah like Maybe. like have you, have you been <laughs> been inspired as you wrote a poem and thought oh that that would make a great idea for this well because I, I know you did do a, a graphic novel that that was adapted yes i guess i have and i i'm not really sure i'm not really sure how to articulate how that has worked it's been sort of a really messy process mm-hmm. but there's been a few different things one was uh, in my first collection of poetry there is a long poem that's kind of the heart of the book and it, um, I did adapt it into a short film. Mm-hmm. So that is out there because the material was kind of conducive to a lot of different ways to approach it. Mm-hmm. So I had approached it in this kind of more cerebral and meditative way in the poem, but it translated pretty well to, to one scene mm-hmm. between a couple and kind of the, maybe the beginning of the end of their relationship. And it kind of plays out visually. And so it was, an, it was, it was actually really a neat experience to take an idea that I had, I felt like I had gone all the way with in the one form, but then the minute that you kind of shift your perspective, you find something new in it and, and, and kind of get excited about it again. It, it was really neat. So that was one. Uh, my second collection of poetry is one long narrative. It's sort of short poems, but they add up to, to a story. Mm-hmm. And I've had conversations for sure. It's very early, but I've had conversations about, um, with a couple of people about possibly trying to, uh, adapt it into a short or even possibly, um, a stage piece, a kind of art installation stage piece, mm. which would be really suitable for this particular story. So yeah, I do find that it kind of fuels it's just really good practice, I think, mm-hmm. to think about the material in different ways. I do often, you know, that graphic novel that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So I, I wrote this, I wrote this comic called Abigail's War, and I originally had the idea for it as a TV series. It's a, it's a period piece, so it's, it's kind of a tough sell. Mm-hmm. It worked really well. It's quite a beautifully, you know, the artist was was really wonderful, and it's kind of a beautiful comic. And now we're, we got telephone funding to, to do the draft of it as a feature. (laughs) So it's kind of, you know, really that, um, that idea has run the whole gamut of, now I need to write a book of poetry about it, I guess. But, um, you know, it has gone through all these different sort of iterations. And I, I guess that just means I am really taken with this particular idea and I want to see it kind of grow and, and maybe actually be seen in some other form. So yeah. Well, it, it it is a really interesting thing that, um, especially if what you love is story, but it's not locked to a particular genre or medium, mm-hmm. um, some often it will it will evolve and and it'll there's there's life inside that story that you don't necessarily know what what the best way to tell that is. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and I think that's. Gr- I mean, I I like that. I think I I completely respect people who say, you know, I only think in features or I only think in, in series TV or, or I only think in prose, you know, novels. And again, still okay. Still not hurt. Um, (laughs) There it goes. 
Um, I'm a little annoyed now, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm not injured in any way. For me, it's good practice because I like the idea of maybe working, you know, in more in adaptations and that kind of thing. So I like having the practice of kind of having these different perspectives on the essence of a, of a story or the essence of a character or even an image, you know, mm-hmm. poetry and screenwriting have a lot in common in the sense that, you know, unlike, say, a lot of prose, like a lot of novels, poetry and screenwriting deal very much in the image to tell, you know, telling a story in economy, you know, there, you don't, you know, there's no, no wasted space in, mm-hmm. in a good poem. So a lot of people that I, I know a number of people that actually work in both forms and, and people do sort of feel like it, they, they mesh well. They, they, they marry well. Very, very cool. So yeah. moving off of poetry now and on to, yeah. um, screenwriting and television and short films. Um, from the point where you graduated from, with your MFA in screenwriting or creative writing, rather, from the University mm-hmm. of British Columbia in 2000, um, what was next? What was next was a bunch of stuff, I guess, at the same time. The very first thing that happened was my thesis advisor sort of encouraged me to um, get out there and talk to people. You know, mm-hmm. I hope this is good advice for some people who are just starting out. But, you know, if you do that thing where you ask somebody who is doing something you might like to do someday, if you can buy them a coffee or a beer and just talk to them about, you know, the industry. Mm-hmm. People often say yes. Yeah. <laughs> They're willing to take their time. It's amazing. And people are, are kind of either everybody gets that, you know, they were there once on the other side of the table or they, everybody likes talking about themselves and feeling smart and feeling like they know stuff. Yeah. Um, probably a combination of both. But I, I asked people and ever, you know, people were happy to, go out for a drink and, and just talk. Mm -hmm. And one of, one of the people that I approached was someone that I had met through a sort of a panel, a visitor in class, actually a guest speaker. At the time there was a CBC show in production, a drama called These Arms of Mine. Mm -hmm. And Phil Savas, who was was a wonderful man and producer um, and writer and many other things, he and his wife, Susan Delegal had created this show together and it was, uh, they had shot a, a short first season and they were shooting sort of um, another half a season. And I took Susan out for a drink and she said, look, I know you want, I know you want, you know, you're sort of looking to get into TV. And there's the, you know, she mentioned that there was this fellowship with BC film mm-hmm. that, and I think they still have it when they have the funding. Basically you, you do an internship in a story department. So you go in and BC wow. film picks up part of the money and, and the production picks up part of, part of your weekly wage, but you get a wage for the week and you go in and you kind of experience everything in the story department. We didn't actually, we weren't successful in getting that fellowship. It was really competitive at the time. Mm-hmm. There were tons of shows like Da Vinci's Inquest was still on. And, you know, there were, it was a really kind of kind of a hot time for Vancouver. So there weren't actually enough to go around, she says. Not <laughs> like she was rejected in any way. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we were disappointed. We didn't get it. Get it but then they, just, they said, you know what? Come work for us anyway. Oh, so great. they they managed yeah, they managed to find a, a budget for me to come in as um as the sort of assistant to the story department and it was great. I so I spent a bunch of that summer and fall of the year two thousand doing research, running out and getting stuff, sitting in on all the tone meetings, sitting on writing notes meetings. It was and just really seeing how a TV production kind of worked, which was hugely intimidating. <laughs> sort of like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, when you haven't seen it before, just seeing how script distribution works and, and rewrite pages and ha- how they get distributed is, is absolutely daunting. But, you know, it was, um, you know, you need to get in there and see how that works before you're in charge of it, say. Mm-hmm. So it was a great experience and it was, um, they were really generous to bring me in. And then that kind of really solidified that TV was where I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And then oddly enough, I started picking up these gigs that were feature based just as I was pushing at TV. So my strategy was kind of apply for everything, keep writing specs, you know, start working on my own pilots and, and see where I could get with them and, and meet people, you know, try and try and meet more people in the industry. That was my strategy. And then oddly enough, I started having sort of some luck in paid work in, in terms of getting hired to rewrite features or collaborate with somebody to write a feature. Mm-hmm. And, you know, many of them were in development and didn't go anywhere. And one was produced and it was uncredited and things like that. But there was money coming in and I felt like, okay, I'm, you know, this is, 
it's not paying the bills yet, but it's it's encouraging, really encouraging. Mm-hmm. So for a while there, I ended up doing more feature work and then getting more feature stuff in development of my own and story editing as well, which I don't think is a common thing in the States. In Canada, it's, it's sort of a career that can run parallel to a feature screenwriting career. Yeah, which, which you know, actually, you, it might be good, mm-hmm. um, just because we do have a lot of U.S. listeners to uh, yeah. to talk about that, because I, I know it's it's been mentioned in passing a few times, and, and I didn't really think about it that way, but in the States, mm-hmm. what will tend to happen for features is you you write something up to a certain point, and then it just gets yanked away from you, and then it gets sent to a completely different writer who doesn't even talk to you, and... Mm-hmm. Um, and they take it over and because of, of guild arbitration, what can often happen is they, they want to change as much as possible mm-hmm, so that they can mm-hmm. get their credit. Get that percentage, so, yeah. so there, here's somebody who, who doesn't have the creative vision of the person who came up with it, um, walking in, changing as much as possible to start. And, and this can happen over and over and over and over again. I find it really, really interesting about the Canadian system that uh-huh. I hear of a lot of people, being hired as story editors to come in and work with work the with the writer, so that, so say uh-huh. there might be something wrong with the script or something that's not not happening right, but the the person with the original vision is still there um, yeah. and working with another person to 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 make it happen. And boy, I, I think. Hollywood could learn a thing or two from that. Yeah, it's it's pretty civilized. Um, I think that I think that American model can happen here. I think it can happen in the sense that you know, a pr- it's not a studio necessarily. It's maybe more. It's it's a producer, maybe a production company might you know have contracted the writer and and decide to go another way. But I'm not actually even sure. Our guild might is pr- might protect us from the really egregious version of that mm-hmm. that you hear those horror stories. You hear, you know, there's all those famous stories of, you know, oh, so-and-so got sole credit on this and they only because no, but none of the other writers percentages, you know, added up to enough to get the credit or whatever. Mm. Crazy stories. I don't know if, if it could literally happen, but the culture of it happening is definitely not, not how it works up here. Mm. But it's much more story editing is, is a collaborative thing for sure. I mean, that's not to say, like, I have done a couple of, like I said, sort of rewrite work, which can be, I am the second writer to come in. Mm-hmm. This has always been amicable. It was either a first-time writer that was will, was on board mm-hmm. with another person coming on, coming on, or it was um, a writer that was just done with a project, had no investment in it, in it anymore, and allowed it to happen. Mm. That I was I, I experienced as well. But the story editor really, you know, from my perspective, the story editor is, the producer and a funding body are paying me to help the feature writer get through the next draft that is the movie everybody wants to make. Mm. So it's really, instead of there being a culture of, you know, studio likes idea and script and tolerates writer until they are no longer comfortable that the writer's going to be able to achieve what they want to achieve. Mm. Instead, it's like you're always kind of invested in that this is the writer's project too. Mm. And you're kind of teaming up producer and writer and maybe director and maybe story editor. You're all kind of teaming up to try and get the script into shape and as strong as it can be so that a, it has the best chance of getting green lit and B makes a good movie. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and it's interesting yeah. um, because uh, again, another thing that's not common in Hollywood is, is there's not a lot of TV writers that bounce back and forth with features in Canada. It's very, very common. And, mm-hmm. but the, what I'm hearing is that a story editing a, a feature here is, is a, just a little bit more like a TV process because it's a, it's a more, um, an ongoing collaboration to, to get this feature made as compared to the, the Lone Ranger solo writer. I hadn't thought about it that way, but that's an that's an interesting way to phrase it because I think I think you're right. I mean, it is sort of, you know, you've put together a little department mm-hmm. of people <laughs> that are yeah. trying to help help this draft be in the best shape it can be. And I have to say, I'm like right now, I have a couple of features of mine in development. I'm working with a story editor, the same story editor on both of them, and it's just it's amazing to feel like somebody else who has no, you know, there is no agenda there beyond being support for the writer. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they do have an agenda to the producer in that they're trying to help the writer meet what the producer is expecting you to, you to get, you know, mm-hmm. get to, but that there's no, you know, it's like it could not be less insidious. It's completely 
a person to talk things through with, a person to to bounce ideas off of. And often the story editor provides full on ideas Mm. like maybe this scene should be this and it should be in this order and this should happen next. And what if he did this for the ending? And when that happens and it's worth doing, it's really exciting. Uh-huh. <laughs> because you feel like you feel like you have an extra brain at work on your story. So, so. it's like having a writing partner without the long-term commitment. Yeah, there you go. Wow, which is, which is really cool because often that's one of the reasons that people are afraid of having a writing partner is because of the long-term commitment. So. Right. And it's kind of, com- it's, it's a complicated relationship, mm-hmm. whereas... The writer story editor relationship not complicated, not really. Very very cool. Well, well, let's uh, let's yeah. hop back on to the uh, chronology. Um, so you also worked as a script analyst and and still do um, for BC Film, Movie Central, Praxis Center for Screenwriters. Um, that's a, a lot of a lot of names. But yeah. um, so it, tell me a little bit about, about that. Well, you're outing me. <laughs> <laughs> I have, yeah. So I there, I think. People do this. So is this even clear what this is? I guess I should explain. In Canada, we have, you know, our, our film industry is so largely based on these government bodies that have, that have money to distribute, to support, um, features and TV being made in the country mm-hmm. because we just don't have a studio system or enough people or money to, um, to sort of for it to be self-funding. Mm-hmm. At least that's, that seems to be our, that seems to be the problem. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there are these, you know, there are these government bodies that give out money and um, you apply. You have to go through these, you know, sort of kind of like a grant application. And um, on the other side of those applications, they, they, these bodies hire readers who are somehow, you know, writers or story people. And uh, you get sort of paid to, to write, to read a script and write a report on it and say, and describe its strengths and weaknesses. Mm. And and for some of those agencies, they want sort of you know the the marketability that you know the the really like is there an audience and is this script going to reach that audience and that kind of thing. So um, yeah, so I did that for a number of years. That was sort of I've kind of stopped doing it lately, and I say that not just because I don't want people to egg my apartment or anything. <laughs> um, <laughs> script readers don't necessarily have the best reputation, and it's because well I don't know I think it's a it's sort of a complex thing. First of all, it's this this blind thing. So, you know, you never know who's on the other side. And I'm always receiving these on the other side as well as the writer getting back these reports of, you know, what's wrong with my script. And you're like, what do you know? <laughs> Shut up. But it, it you know, it's, uh, I think, you know, a lot of the, the script readers I know really are trying um, to, to be as respectful to the material as they can and to really get what it was the, was the intent, whether or not it's, you know, our cup of tea and really honestly say, you know, who's going to see this and are there enough people that want to see this? And um, I think a lot of a lot of analysts like me wanted, you know, we're really pushing for more marketable features. So it was sort of like, you know, you'd get a more positive report if it was a feature that it seemed like, you know, if my if I thought my mom would go see the movie. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> really exciting, yeah. you know, because then, then I can see how there'd be this really wide audience beyond people who are already in film or beyond, you know, getting people to come out to a Canadian feature can be hard. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, a, it's there's not a lot of money for promotion and um, we don't have the celebrity system the same way. Paul Gross can't be in everything. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's it can be hard. So I did do that for a long time. Yeah, it's sort of the script reading is ca- for a lot of people can be, you know, kind of in tandem to doing story editing mm. for features. A lot of like I know that in Vancouver, Telefilm's approved script reader list is almost entirely the story editors who are busiest in this city mm. as well. The same people. Yeah. Yeah. So it is people who care about story. If anyone's <laughs> wondering, we care about story. Cool. So, so, um, jumping ahead a little bit. So, so you did a, uh, a bunch of, um, script, um, analysis and some development work and you did some mm-hmm. feature rewriting. And mm-hmm. uh, and also you uh, co-created a TV pilot in in 2001, Emily's Bookshop. I did, yes, yeah. That was um that had a shot at being on TVO. We had we were almost on TVO, but um it sort of like a lot of things died. But it was a pilot that was shot, and it had puppets. Puppets, it's interesting. Really cool. It's really cool to write for puppets. Oh yeah. One day, one day, I want to write for puppets again. Yeah. Very very cool. And then and then just to move move ahead, so. 
Um, then in 2003, you got an opportunity to actually be an instructor at Vancouver Film School, which is one of the more I respected did. programs in the country. Mm-hmm. It was great. Yeah. It's a really good program. It's an incredibly rigorous program. Mm-hmm. It actually, you know, no disrespect to my alma maters, but the one-year writing program at VFS makes made my master's degree look actually kind of relaxed. <laughs> so, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty great. And there are a lot of really dedicated people teaching there. And so I, you know, and it's one of those things where when you have to teach something, you really continue to learn it mm. and continue to, to, to practice your own. And there would be times that, you know, some of the instructors would be like, okay, well, the students are writing this and this, this term in this number of weeks. So let's do that as well. You know, be like, oh, okay, well, I should write a pilot in six weeks, you know, and develop the world and a Bible and stuff because that's what we're asking them to do. So, mm. so it could be, it was great fuel that way. Very cool. And, and then, yeah. uh, after that, you did more development and rewrites mm-hmm. and, uh, short film, Nostalgia Boy 2005. Yeah. And then when did you, uh, break into television or am I getting ahead of myself? Anything significant? Um, uh, you, you you did quite a few, quite a bit of feature work in, in that time, but mm-hmm, um, yeah. what was your what was your way of breaking into TV? Well, I will say all of that time, all of those years, all those many many years, I was always like I said, always pushing at TV. Mm-hmm. TV was my you know TV is a great love of mine, and I was I really wanted to I, I really wanted to be working in the industry, and really felt like I was I really felt like I would be at home in a story department, mm-hmm. but hadn't really had the shot. So I was constantly, you know, I was writing a spec every year for sure. And for a number of years there, kind of was interviewed for a number of sort of being the junior person on the team. And for a variety of reasons, it didn't pan out, some of which was being in Vancouver instead of Toronto. Sometimes it's like, you know, there was one case of I haven't seen a lot of sexism in in my experience, which is great, mm-hmm. but this one time it was hilarious because there was a clearly a real women driven show and staff and showrunner. And we had a really good inter, I had a really good interview with them. And what it came down to, they told my agent what it came down to was their whole staff was women and they, the, they needed the junior person to be a dude. Oh no. So- <laughs> <laughs> Reverse sexism. I was like, well, you know what? Okay. I can, I can live with that. Yeah. Because, you know, there were so many women working there. It was great. But I, I was on the radar a bunch of times and still continuing to write new stuff. And, you know, I had a couple of series ideas of my own options that, you know, kind of went out. And, and people at Broadcasters got to know me a little bit that way. I don't know if they'll remember me. Hopefully they do. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, shows that didn't go. But, you know, I kind of had some great experience developing with some producers. Mm-hmm. And then the really the big moment was... Uh, I applied for an award called the Global Writer Apprentice Award. Mm-hmm. That is Googleable. You will find the right thing. And what it is is Global, alongside Banff, kind of offers the. There are a couple of different programs. One is the more emerging writer program. They also have a showrunner program. Mm-hmm. So they kind of have both ends of the spectrum. They're offering these amazing experiences. The first thing is they send you to Banff for free. The registration is covered. You're Stay is covered. Everything is free, and they help set you up with meetings. But also, you you know, you're just free to set up meetings with whoever you want. So I had I, I got to go to Banff and meet other people that were in the same boat as me, and and we kind of got to know each other and had a, just a ton of meetings. And so that was an amazing experience. But the other part of the award was they put you that you get a one month internship on a show of theirs. Oh, cool. Yeah. So that was actually how I got onto Shattered. So Shattered was a one-hour police procedural that featured a homicide detective who also was suffering from DID, multiple personality disorder. <laughs> and yeah, so I got I I was I knew I had a month internship on that show and so my philosophy when I went when I went into the story room was pretty much well, I don't really have anything to lose here. There's not a lot of use to being quiet and observant for a month. Uh-huh. So I kind of the showrunners were really friendly and I said if I'm ever overstepping my you know, the bounds, and if I'm ever being annoying, just tell me. Mm-hmm. It's fine. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm. I kind of told them I was like, I'm gonna go for it. <laughs> so in the in the room, I ended up, um, you know, I was really honest and I expressed my real opinions, and I tried my best not to be too shy and too passive, and I pitched ideas, and some of the ideas were they really liked, and we developed them further into story ideas for actual episodes and. So within that month that was 
you know, what I was given, I kind of, I either convinced them or brow, browbeat them into <laughs> keeping me. And so they, they kept me on as story editor for that first season and they gave me an episode. And so that was a real, you know, the better chunk of a year on that, on that series. So that was my real tr- first trial at the room and it was everything I hoped it would be. And so I, I knew I'm like, well, I'm, I'm committed to this now for sure. Very, very cool. And, and good on yeah. you for taking that opportunity. I, I know, um, it's tough. It's, it's tough when, um, e- even though you're in the industry, when you're not in the part of the industry you want to be in, um, and the, the clock is ticking and, and, it, and it's funny yeah. be, because you have so much to offer, but it's, but it seems like, um, the, the, the younger people who have nothing to lose are taking those chances. And it's important as a, as a more mature person that you also take those chances. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to say this, that award that I won, that is clearly like an emerging writer award. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, I'm going to be old for having won this award. And, you know, when we, six of us won that award that, that year and we were all almost the same age. Wow. We were all like mid thirties ish. And so I thought, okay, this is, this, this might just be how it is for a lot of us, you know, that we all had credits of some kind. We had all been working. We'd all been paid to write but hadn't hadn't had the shot in the room. Mm-hmm. And so that actually was probably a moment of real, it's a little, little bit of an uh, epiphany moment because it was sort of like, okay, just relax. Would you? <laughs> and, uh, and that has really helped. So, you know, it is what it is. It's, but I, you know, I also have since worked with people who are not in their thirties and no one seems to have any problem hiring somebody who's experienced and older so I sort of feel like, okay, there's a lot of years left. You know, it doesn't, it's not necessarily a 25 year old game. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's very encouraging. Very encouraging. Yeah. Um, and before we move on to the, the most recent stuff, um, I was interested in the fact that you, uh, won an award for being a stand up comic as well. I did. So <laughs> how did that enter the picture? I, <laughs> for years, my husband threatened to buy me classes stand-up comedy classes uh-huh. as a present. And for years, I was like, that's crazy. That'll be a waste of money. And then one year, I was like, hmm, maybe that'd be fun. And kind of, you know, I, I told myself, you know, I'm going tr- to try this. And the class was really kind of a workshop. It was a, it was a pretty fun class, but it was a lot of, you know, homework was going away and writing jokes during the week and coming up and, and coming up to the microphone during class and just Get, you know, delivering the jokes and trying to get the laugh and trying to make the jokes better. And so I treated it like an opportunity to learn how to write comedy better and not, not worry so much about the performing because I don't consider myself a performer at all. But it was great for both of those things. It was great for learning how to write and structure a joke better. And it was really great for bravery, mm-hmm. for just feeling like, I don't know. To, for for me to to go on stage as a comic, I had to just convince myself that that it was all just play and it didn't really matter at all. You know, uh-huh. like really, come on. I mean, you're not. We're not saving lives. We're not. You know, what is the absolute worst that happens here? I cry. That's not that bad. Uh-huh. That's fine. I'll get over it. You know. Um. So and I didn't cry. I didn't cry on stage. Mm-hmm. So that was good. But it was it was an amazing experience, and I did it for a while, but. What happened for me was, as you, you noted, I have, you know, I have written in all these different forms and have kind of at least experimented in a bunch of different kinds of writing. And for me, the comedy just became, it became clear to me that my heart wasn't in performing. Mm. And what I saw around me at, you know, these bars and coffee shops was people who were really committed to it. Mm. And I thought, well, I'm really committed to my thing over here, which is TV, but I'm not committed to this and I'm not willing to spend five or six of every five or six nights of every week going out there and performing and getting better and writing new material and all of that. My heart's not in that. And I started to feel like it was a bit, started to feel like a bit of a sham. You know, I can't just keep performing the same material and every now and then going out and doing something at a, at a club. I needed to, I think either kind of get in or out and I decided to get out and focus on my other stuff. Mm-hmm. I got plenty going on. I got plenty of ways to be rejected. I don't need to be a stand-up comedian. <laughs> so that it was, a, it was, um, it was a phase. It was like, you know, some girls in college experiment some ways and some of us experiment with stand-up comedy. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and, and at least you walked out with uh, with an award. Uh, the I did. Funniest. I still have the trophy. Funniest new female comic <laughs> in Vancouver, which is you know pretty impressive. Thank you. Um, and and so shattered, um, shattered the barrier between you you and television. Um, Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and so from there, it seems like things really started happening. So, so tell me about the last couple of years since Shattered. Um, a, f- a few different shows, also um, a number of projects optioned, lots of stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah, the big stuff, I guess. It, it's very. It was interesting how, you know, I don't know that a lot of it necessarily comes directly from the one job because a lot of things happened kind of in 2009 for me, and. To me, the, the lesson of them or, or what I, the way I kind of think of them is that I'm one of those people that kind of plants a lot of seeds or, mm. or however you want to call it. I, I sort of, I had a lot of things that were sort of out there and some of them finally clicked. Some of them finally got going. Mm. And so one of them is this mini series that I have in development with the production company in Vancouver is How Sound and our, our network is Showcase. And we've, so 2009, that trip to Banff, in fact, is when Showcase said, yes, we want to put this into development. Wow. So, um, mm-hmm. it was an exciting time. And, uh, it's been a great process. It's a huge beast. It's four hours. So it's sort of two, two episodes, two hours each. And so it's been a huge uh, task to, to write it. And, you know, structurally, if you think about it as kind of like a traffic, that would help sort of a multi-story, multi-character exploration of a sort of a political and cultural issue. That's what that miniseries is. Mm-hmm. So that has been something I've been working on a lot and we're waiting to see if we're going to another phase with that. And then around the same time, I got a go ahead on a, this script called Clockwork Girl, which is an adaptation of a kid's comic and that it's in late stages of production actually. It's it's in the works right now and it's got a bunch of voice actors that are amazing like Jeffrey Tambor and Brad Garrett and Alexa Vega, who was from Spy Kids, and Jesse McCartney. These these guys are all the voice actors for the movie, which is really kind of cool. Mm, and it is an animated uh, feature film. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's CG animation, and it looks beautiful. Very cool. So I'm excited to see that. Yeah. So that suddenly got got a green light, and then I guess post shattered. Um, the two big things that happened are that um, that Abigail's War that feature that I mentioned was a, was a comic first. Mm-hmm. We, we, we got, got sent a draft from Telefilms on that. So that's been really exciting working, working with Paul Gertz and Zeros to Heroes on that. And th- and that's being adapted for a feature film. Yes, that's good. Yeah, yep. That's a feature. Yes. And then a big part of my life now is Mr. Young, of course, which is a multi-camera sitcom, sort of a family sitcom for YTV. And we are in between seasons right now. So we finished season one in April mm-hmm. and we go back, the writers go back for, uh, to start season two in June. Although, in fact, we're already writing. So really excited to go back and, and expand on the experience I got there. It's just an amazing, it's an amazing experience up there. Very cool. So, so tell me mm-hmm. about writing a half hour multi-camera family show as compared to all of the other forms that you've worked in. Wow. Totally different. And yet, I mean, the learning curve was huge for sure. And probably the biggest difference is just that the story department is so collaborative. Like it is an, it's an, a real old school sitcom in the sense that, you know, the seven of us sit around kind of a boardroom table. We're all looking at these monitors that has the script in question, you know, the script we're working on that week up on them, but it's the writer's assistant that's actually doing the typing. And, and we don't do any typing. <laughs> we just look at the script and we we pitch out loud. It's, it's just a constant stream of pitching story suggestions and solutions, or but especially pitching jokes. The way we work, I guess, is we um, will often brainstorm story ideas together, mm-hmm. and then we'll often break a story together. So we'll actually break break down a story into its beats. You know, an A story, a B story, and break it down into its beats. And then a writer will go off and write a draft. And that's the only time that a writer on um, a comedy like this is sort of on their own writing. Mm-hmm. And then they come back with a draft, and then as a group, we rewrite it. We, we make it stronger, you know, structurally or whatever, and we especially punch up all the jokes. Mm-hmm. So it's really, really fabulous, and we're really lucky that we like each other because <laughs> it is long days where you're staring at each other's faces all day. And I cannot imagine what it would be like if you didn't really like and respect the other writers in the room mm-hmm. because... You know, you're, when you're just 
pitching jokes, you have to, it has to be okay that it, that you're going to say things that aren't funny and that aren't good. You know, it really has to be sort of a trusting place and come from a place of, I'm willing to throw this out there knowing that it might not be the thing, but you might now have the idea that is the thing, you know? So if you didn't trust each other to not, I don't make fun of each other, to not disrespect each other, it would be hard. Mm. But instead, we're really lucky and it's, it's been really great. So yeah, so some writers here in town and a couple from Toronto learning how to work in this form. We're kind of being trained to be able to work on, on a format like this. And, you know, hopefully, I mean, a lot of people now are seeing the success of this show and hoping that we might be able to get some more multi-cameras going in the country and especially in Vancouver. We could really use another couple of shows out here mm. since a bunch of things have shut down. So, yeah. Very, very cool. Very cool. So we're going to start to wrap things up in a minute. Um, typically towards the end, we, we talk about tips for breaking in. And I know we've covered a few things already. Um, mm-hmm. I know you talked about setting up uh, coffee times or beer times with um, mm-hmm. with writers to um, to pick their brains and to get connected. Yeah. Uh, another, another thing you talked about was planting a lot of seeds um, yes. of different kinds and, and watering those. And, and yes. another thing that you talked about was um, being ag- aggressive when you get that opportunity and also writing fellowships and, and different opportunities like that. But apart from all of those, if you were to counsel somebody who was, say, you 12 years ago, um, mm-hmm. what what would you say are the tips you've learned now on, on breaking in? So many of those are really my, you know, I'm glad you noted all of those because I, I believe in all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I often think of, it's sort of about the being aggressive, but aggressive might even be too aggressive a word. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny about that word. It is the idea of networking and not being afraid of that as something that is somehow, you know, a really cheesy or cynical thing to do. Mm. Because I think at first, and if if you're a little, I'm one of those people that I can't figure out if I'm shy or not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm maybe more awkward at times than I am shy, but, you know, it can be really hard to figure out what that means. I think when people say, you know, you have to network, it sounds like you have to be a, this you know, like a politician shaking hands and kissing babies, or it's hard to know exactly what that means. But I think what it really just means is, you know, get to know people and make friends in your, in the industry you want to work in. It's, it's not hard to do that. You can always go out and, well, if you're in a city that has any kind of industry going on, it's not that hard to do because you can go out to, you know, film festival stuff. There's always classes being put on. Mm -hmm. There's parties during different times of the year when there's different kinds of festivals. And you, you know, you meet people and at first I think you, you sort of, you end up hanging out with people that are more in the position you're in. And then as time goes by, you know, different people have sort of different responsibilities within the industry and suddenly you know someone in development and you know someone who's a producer's assistant and you know this person over there. And suddenly you have people you can ask for advice or you can have, yeah, you have people that you can ask to read your stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. and that it's kind of building that because I sort of feel like, I, you know, after a while, I finally got it when I finally saw how, how much energy and how much time goes into the making of a feature or a series and that people are going to be sweating. They're going to be sweating it two years after it's shot. <laughs> you know, you, they really have to love it. Yeah. They really have to be into it. And life's too short to want to, you know, spend a lot of time with people that you don't want to don't want to know, mm. don't want to be in a room with. So, you know, if you can figure out how to be somebody people don't hate being in a room with, that's kind of good. Mm. And and I think that that's part of it. It's like finding those people that you know, oh, I'd want to work, I'd want to work with this person the minute that it happened. You know, um, a story I kind of like is I have a friend who, uh, who writes and produces on Mad Men and she and her husband are writing partners and um, they had a lot of, you know, they had a lot of experience and a lot of credits, but they they weren't, you know, they weren't on shows and movies that struck you as Mad Men prep material. They mm. were, you know, they, they they actually did a bunch of Olsen twin stuff. They did like Baywatch Hawaii. They have hilarious stories. But what happened was, um, you know, the creator of Mad Men, when he finally got his show up, he they were good friends back in the day. And he called them up and he said, you two are coming on my show. Wow. And and that's like sort of the, the sort of the peak kind of version of that story. But I think that that kind of story happens all the time. You know, eventually the people that you came up with, you know, when you were younger are starting to be the people that 
get to work on a show and can recommend you or even have a get a show of their own. So I do think the people factor is really important. Mm. So not even just, you know, asking asking more senior people if they'll if they'll if you can treat them to a coffee and pick their brain, but also just building a community. It's like if you can think about it as not so much schmoozing as making a community of people that are like-minded and want to make stuff maybe together, but definitely, you know, kind of support each other along the way, then I think it's a healthy way of thinking about what networking is. Mm. Well, actually, uh, there have been quite a few people on the podcast that have said pretty much the, the same thing. And, and oh, good. I, I know that, I mean, the, the, the further I get into the industry, I, I talk about this even just, I mean, I, I work primarily in editing, but it becomes less and less and less about the, the content or the type of the show and more and more and more about who I want to work with. Yeah. It just makes sense, yeah. right? I mean, I mean, because you, you want to enjoy coming to work and, and enjoying coming to, coming to work is a lot of who you're with. Yeah. I mean, otherwise, how long are you going to last? Mm-hmm. You're just going to want to quit and take up some sane business. <laughs> yeah. And that's no fun. So yeah, I think it's, I think that that's, you know, the sort of the most naive version of myself. That's what I didn't know is that it's not something to be ashamed of, this idea of networking. I think people who aren't in the industry, you know, there's a kind of derogatory vibe about the idea of schmoozing, mm-hmm. which is, a, I think, kind of a stupid word because it does sound like all you do is go to cocktail parties or something. But uh, that's what I would have wanted to know, I think. That and just, you know, apply for stuff. Mm. You know, just reach for it. Yeah. Someone's going to get it. <laughs> Might as well be you. <laughs> Why not you? Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I guess we'll we'll end it here. You've been very very generous generous with your time. And um, uh, one thing I actually before we go, uh, you you didn't say anything about being an adjunct professor at UBC as well. Um, <laughs> it was brief. Yeah, it was it was brief. It okay, was... so so you helped out a little bit. Um, but wow, you've got a lot of projects on the go, and it sounds like things are really hopping for you, which is awesome, especially in Vancouver. I know I've I've spoken with other. Vancouver writers that were feeling like things were a little harder there than mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. this part of the country. So um, I don't know why, but I it ha- I happen to be lucky right now. I'm sure thing you know everything. I think sort of there are, there are spikes and valleys, and I happen to be enjoying being busy. But um, hopefully, we're just going to get a lot more production stuff happening out here, and everybody will be working more. Mm-hmm. Very very cool. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time, and uh, and I I really. Um, think that people are going to be very encouraged by by all of the things that uh, that you've shared. I hope so. Cool. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, thanks so much. Okay. okay take care. Okay. You too. Bye bye. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. And by Final Draft Script Writing Software, the entertainment industry standard for script writing worldwide. Uh-huh.